so we're coming to the book of Acts. I think what motivated me today with this, we'll see if it works, different kind of sermon, but just, just this, this reality, uh, this supposition that most, most Christians are coming in and, and thinking or feeling with sermons from the, the high points of Scripture that it's really nice to know what the heroes of the faith did. It's really nice to know how maybe Paul was this, this phenomenal uh, missionary. Um, but I'm, I don't know that I'm a hero of the faith. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to be Billy Graham. Uh, most of us in here probably don't think we're going to be Billy Graham. Uh, in a hundred years, will, will we be the dominant person that people are still thinking of that would be written, written down in the annals of, of church history? Most of us... Uh, if not all of us, probably won't be at that level. And so when we study the people that are written down in the annals of, of our faith or in church history, we kind of get this interesting thing of, um, I see what they did, I see why they did it, and I see what God might have done in their life, but I'm not the main character in, in the movie. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a side character, we're like a supporting actor or actress. Like I... I play a supporting role at, at best, or I, I don't even know that I'm playing a supporting role. I think I'm just one of those grips that holds, holds microphones and things like that while they're filming something, or I might even be just a, a bystander while they're filming this story or kind of doing this thing. I don't see that I'm kind of in the vein or in the flow of, of God's unfolding plan kind of at that level. And so when we talk about something like Acts and we're saying, hey, let's, let's look at Acts and how we join God in, in this mission of being witnesses for Jesus Christ, how, how we kind of get into that story, we can end up with something very, very uh, challenging. And that's, I, I don't know how relevant that is for my life or how practical that is, or, or it just feels so abstract. I don't know, I don't know how to jump into that game. I'm working 50, 60 hours, I'm barely paying the bills, trying to keep up with kids, just trying to be responsible uh, in dif different areas of my life. I don't know how to, to re-envision my story or my life to somehow look like Paul or to somehow look like Timothy or Silas or Barnabas or Mark or, or Peter or any of these other people. And so we kind of um, have this disconnect, I think that we walk out of church or we walk out of reading great literature or great books and we go back to just our routine because it's what we know, it's what we're comfortable with, it's, it's maybe even what works and the whole time we kind of just live uh, in this split reality. Like that's really cool, I don't know how I'm a part of that or that I can be a part of that. And I want to give a, a, a picture of Acts here as it unfolds uh, through the first two-thirds or so of the book that looks at Paul, but, but that we can ask some different questions about how does this actually look in my life? Like, do I, do I have a role that I can play, or is God inviting me into his story, maybe, in a much more profound way than I think he ever has? Because I would, I would submit to you that God uses the people who are willing to jump in. David, um, if no one else is going to fight, I'll fight. Isaiah, if, if, if no one else is going to raise their hand, I'll raise my hand. Paul, uh, who persecuted the church, saying, okay, 
uh, I'll go do it. I'm a pretty zealous guy. Uh, I, know how to, I know how to persecute people. I probably know how to endure persecution too. Um, I'll go. And I think there's something really interesting about this idea when Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, that doesn't leave room for us to say, God's doing his story and doesn't really need me. Like, I, I mean, it seems like he's doing okay with his story. Billy Graham, on to whoever, on to whoever. It's not like he really needs me. And I think that that's false. I think that that's not true. I think Jesus was, was simply saying, man, there's so much work to be done. There's very few people that actually engage. And you should pray. You should actually think about. You should wrestle with the idea that if you would choose that challenge, if you would raise your hand, if you'd say you'd fight that fight, if you'd say, if, if no one else is going to go, I'll be sent, I'm willing to, that there's room, there's space for you in this story that God is writing. You this morning, even if you don't change your job, uh, even if your finances don't resolve themselves, I'm, I'm telling you that with faith, with a choice of saying, I'm surrendering my life to serve you, God, whatever that means, that there is room for you in the, in the narrative and the story of God as it unfolds as we are witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's where I'm starting from. So let's just look at Acts and then move it through. Acts is really part two. It's, it's one continuous story. We broke it up way, way long ago. The early church did so that they could take the gospel part, the part of Jesus' life, and keep it with the other gospels. Remember, they had, they had scrolls. Their books were small. Paper was very precious. And so they would write the gospels, um, send them kind of together. These are the stories of Jesus. And so they grouped those. Uh, they're grouped by the first three, what, what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In other words, they share a lot of the same material. They're trying to tell and recount the story, and there's kind of like an authoritative version that they're all kind of sharing, and they even use some of these similar verses um, because that was what was held in, in kind of the oral culture of that day, uh, and those people knew each other, might have even used uh, the, each other's gospels as they kind of wrote their own and kind of took it forward. Very different, but, but sharing a lot in common. John's gospel, as you'd expect, written much later and written from the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, is, is much more personal and, and just of a different variety, and so they put that last. So the first three gospels are the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John comes last because it's very different, it's very unique, very original, and it's dated later. And then all of a sudden you get to Acts. So what we've kind of done is we've split up Luke's story. Luke, who sat down and said, I'm going to write you this account, first with this one letter and then next with this other letter, um, it ends up kind of being in two different parts. Acts comes first after the Gospels because it's our real only account, historical account, of the days right after Jesus and then really the building of the early church. So it's why we have Acts here. If we begin in Acts, it says this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. And after his suffering, he presented himself to them, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. In other words, the foundation of the church, the foundation of Christianity, is on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not here to be spiritual under the banner of Christianity we're here because we have a belief in the risen Christ. That's the foundation of the church. 
It's the foundation of Christianity. It's getting lost in our generation. It's getting kind of just muddied into this weird form of this is my preferential view of being spiritual because I like that Jesus guy. He was kind of into peace and he talked a lot about love um, and the Doobie Brothers sang a great song about him and he was just all right with them. Um, but it's, it's getting muddy, but, but make no mistake, since day one in the church, there is no reason to be a Christian or or. Frankly, there's no way to say historically that you are a Christian if you're not building on this foundation stone that Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, rose from the dead. Okay? Um, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words... Uh, the mark and, and the seal and the thing that kind of took you from your former life to your new life was water. That was the symbolism, even in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was water. There's also the blood that, that they would sprinkle from a lamb. They would, they would dip a hyssop branch in blood and sprinkle it on people as a way of symbolizing that you were being cleansed. Okay? And so this, all these symbols are changing now and saying it's actually the Holy Spirit, not a dead symbol, but a living symbol, this symbol that's going to come on you and not just mark you as, as belonging to a certain group, but empowering you to now go and carry out the incarnation. I came in the flesh. I did my ministry. I'm leaving you as the body of Christ, as my body, as the church, are going to continue to do my ministry. And this Holy Spirit is going to empower you to do that. So wait for the power. I mean, that sounds like a, an easy message. If I was going to be in a superhero movie, but I didn't have my superhero powers yet, I would wait for my superhero powers. Um, Tamara and I just saw Avengers. Then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then after this, he was taken up before their eyes. And so what we see is something really interesting uh, you've heard it said at Antioch since before we even began Antioch that there's at home and in the backyard and then abroad. Uh, so Jerusalem is home. It's your affinity group. Uh, Judea is your backyard, but it's still your affinity group. It's still, it's still kind of out there, a little bit of a distance, but it's people that share the same worldview with you. Samaria, same distance as Judea, backyard, kind of out there, but not your affinity group. These are the people you don't share a worldview with. You might even not like their worldview, okay? Um, But yet, be witnesses to them. So you have at home, Jerusalem, backyard made up into two two different parts, the affinity group and the non-affinity group. Affinity group would be going to other churches in America and sharing blessings or stories or teaching and, and kind of blessing them that way, learning from them and being able to instruct them um, bringing their blessings back, bringing our blessings to them. It's, it's an easy, fun, kind of enriching thing sometimes. Going into the inner city and doing challenging work or working with um, racism in America or doing 
uh, work with drug addicts and rehabilitation and whatever that's very challenging and isn't really within kind of the, the club of Christianity. This is Samaria in that, in that worldview. It's your backyard, but it's not your affinity group. So at home, in your backyard, and then abroad, the ends of the earth. That, that we, we also share this kind of need to be in connection with the rest of the world. Um, the rest of the world in terms of as, as we witness to them, and then I think as they mirror back to us or, or witness back to us what Christ is doing in their context so that we don't begin to make God into our own image. I mean, we can begin to think the way God works in evangelicalism in America is somehow the normative center. And when you go to South America or Africa or Asia where the church is exploding, not decreasing like it is in America, but exploding in South America, Asia, Africa, and you begin to see what's happening there, you begin to go, oh, we're not the center of the world. Like the way we do it, the way we think about it, the songs we might even sing, how we would even practice kind of our fellowship, it's not the normative center. It's one expression of a very beautiful mosaic that comes together as lots of different people in different places worship our shared God, our one Father. So there's something beautiful about this. And as we're doing that, we're also taking this news of the resurrection of Jesus to people. Now, we seem to always split this from the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we seem to always split this from the power of the Holy Spirit. So right from the beginning, we get this formula that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to or direct or guide the mission of God. Um, it's not under our own power. It's not under our own direction. We are in a responsive role. Okay, we get that. Number two, it's God's mission. We're fond of asking, what is God's will for my life? And, and rather, we should be asking, how do I serve God's will with my life? Okay, not what is God's will for my life, but how do I serve God's will with my life? So the power, the direction is going to come from the Holy Spirit the mission of God is clear, it's big enough, it's robust enough that all of us can play a part in this. And then the interesting thing that ends up happening as we move forward, I want to say, is that where God guides um, in his mission, he ultimately also will provide. Um, Brandon Reynolds, when he was here, used to always say that. Where God guides, God provides. I would want to broaden that out and say, there, when we look to the Holy Spirit, we look to the Holy Spirit for guidance and we look to the Holy Spirit for provision. Those are two very different types of prayer, two very different things we would do in our conversation with God. All right, if we move forward, we flip over uh, and we see that in the back half of chapter 1, they now need to replace Judas. So the number 12 is a really big deal for uh, the Jewish culture, the, the patriarchs, everything else. There was 12 disciples. Now there's not. Judas has committed, committed suicide. There's only 11 uh, disciples or apostles. they got to replace him. How are they going to do that? Um, so what they do, when Peter stands up and says, we need to fill somebody to take the spot, is they think through the qualifications. It needs to be somebody that's been with us the whole time, somebody that, that was a, a member of kind of the, the, the broader circle, not the 12, but maybe the broader circle, that's heard the teachings of Jesus, that has proven character. So there's these, these qualifications that need to happen, and they come up with two guys. They, they come up with two guys. And then they do something really interesting. They nominate the two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, and then Matthias. And then when they prayed, they said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. 
show us which of these two men you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left uh, to go where he belongs. I like that. Let's just be honest. Um, he didn't just go. He went where he belongs. Um, and then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the 11 apostles. Interesting. We've gone as far as human reason can take us. Here's the criteria. Here, here's how we're going to vet people. And we came to two. And now what are we supposed to do? Jesus picked the apostles. You know, God's the one that chooses kind of that foundation, that framework of 12. We, we've weeded it down as far as we can do, but we don't know what's in the heart. We don't know who God would choose. So we're going to pray. God, we don't, we don't know. You, you know. We don't know. Um, and then when they're done, they cast lots. They roll the dice. They flip a coin. And God speaks through the coin. And they chose Matthias. Now, it's interesting. Most every pastor I've ever met avoids this topic because they don't know what to do with it because it, it, it's scary. Why is it scary? Why is it scary? What's that? Says Evan Hendricks. Um, so, yes, it would, it would almost feel like we're we're doing this kind of gambling or chance. We're going we're gonna to play games of chance with truth. I think it goes even deeper than that. I'm a pastor. I know this. I prefer to control you. That's what I prefer. It's a lot easier for me. Um, it's less work. Uh, when I say and you do, um, it actually feels kind of good. Um, and, uh, and, you, and you don't ask questions. The last thing I want is you going home and flipping a coin on a whole bunch of things. You know what that would mean for my life? Uh, pastor, I disagree. The coin said. <laughs> or you know what? We prayed. We talked about it as women's ministry. Um, and then we cast lots. And you know, Pastor, um, uh, this is where where God is taking us. I mean, it just, it begins to feel very wild, very, very crazy. I don't want to empower you like that. Um, I don't want to empower you like that. Uh, but here's the truth. I actually believe God works that way. I think it can be horribly abused. But I think God works through faith. And when you come to the, when you're trying to serve God, and you're fully submitted to God, and you come all the way to the end of the guidance that God can give, and you say, God, I've got to take a leap of faith here, and I'm doing it to serve you the best that I can, so I'm going to jump, and you let the wind blow left, or you let the wind blow right, and, and I'll hit the ground running. Um, now, maybe I'll get it wrong, God, but I don't know what else to do here. I think God works that way. I think we're supposed to trust that the Holy Spirit can catch us when we jump. Or even if we get it wrong, that God's big enough to make up for that mistake. Here's what we never do. We never try and control other people with the God card. God told me you're supposed to marry him. That's when we get into spiritual abuse. And we can get into it really, really quick. But you're going to see that the Holy Spirit guides, and it's always in a way that makes us a little bit more uncomfortable than I think what we'd want to be. 
I think we want the Holy Spirit to be a force that joins us as we have good motives. Let me say that again. We want the Holy Spirit to be a force that joins us as we have good motives. We want the, the Holy Spirit to give us our spidey sense um, because we're, we're really wanting to serve God. And while we're serving God, we also want life to be a little easier and money to come. Um, we, we want that too. And, you know, spidey sense will help with that as well. But so, God, if you would just juice me up as I have these good motives of serving you. That's what I really want from the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to really have to depend on the Holy Spirit to, to, to blindly walk into a fog that feels a lot like faith. Tam and I, um, we've had our fair share the last uh, month or two. And so we were laying there um, about a week ago in the morning and kind of reeling from some recent challenges. And I, I, it's the first time it ever occurred to me um, I said, Tammy, you know, like when we, when we walk the river trail with the dog, we have, we have a dog, a go, golden doodle that's really pretty and the most ridiculously um, scared dog you've ever met. Scared of the dark, scared of babies, just scared. Um, it's really funny. And so the first time she got in the water, she was just really scared. She was born to swim. She can float. You know, dogs are wired that way. But the first time the dog got in the water, it was just really wild to watch how scared she was, right? So I'm, I'm sitting there talking to Tamara. I'm like, you know, I just had this realization. She said, what's that? I said, when you've been walking by faith and it, and it goes up a level of, of difficulty. So you're, you're walking by faith, which is hard, and it goes up a level of difficulty. I said, I'm going to call that swimming by faith now. Swimming by faith is even harder than walking by faith. Right? So we don't, we don't want to have to walk by faith. We don't want to have to swim by faith. We don't want to have to really take jumps into the dark and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to guide and going to provide as we go through a very difficult life because what we're, what we're going to see is that all of this serving of God doesn't come after we deal with the challenges in our, in our life. It, 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 it happens in the midst of the challenges and the persecution and the suffering in our life. Um, we don't get through it so that we can then go beyond mission for God. As we're on mission for God in a broken world, we endure and persevere through the trials and the sufferings that are all around us. Do you see the difference? All right, so Matthias is chosen by flipping a coin. Um, you can chew on that one later. Uh, maybe it's helpful, so I'll just put it to you this way. Uh, I was having a conversation in Portland yesterday with someone that used to go to Antioch, and they were asking me about faith, and here's my formula for faith. Um, you go forward in faith or backward in wisdom. You go forward in faith or backward in wisdom. If God's called you to do something really ridiculous, quit your job, okay, um, then you got to do it because God called you to do it. If you really hate your job, and it's really, really risky to quit it, um, and you'd like for God to catch you, you're on your own. And I, I see a lot of people write God into that. Um, and, and, uh, and so if you have not heard clearly from God, don't move forward in faith. You're taking a risk on your own. You're, you're employing wishful thinking, right? What do we have to use when God has not spoken to us very clearly about a decision? What do we have to use? Wisdom. Yeah, exactly. So you go forward in faith if God calls you. In the absence of that, you go backwards and you grab on to wisdom. 
And that's the thing that God says, this is, the, this is what will hold you or guide you in the lack of specific guidance or specific information as you utilize wisdom, which includes tapping into other people that can speak into your life, that, that uses experience, uses best practices, all that. So this is your anchor until God calls you by faith. And then when God calls you by faith, as awkward as it is, you got to let go of this one and you actually got to do what God says to do. Go forward in faith or backwards in wisdom. Um, Chapter 3, Peter heals a lame beggar. Silver and gold do I have none, but, but what I do have I can give. And he heals this, this beggar. And then what's really interesting is he goes on in verse uh, 16, Acts 3, verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. It's fascinating. He goes on to say more with the Sanhedrin in the next. So in other words, when they drag him forward, let's just look at it, 429. Um, eh, that switches. I wrote down the wrong verse. He says it twice, um, Peter does, about the name that, that has been given by which this person is saved. So it's faith in the name of Jesus and then when he goes to the Sanhedrin, he, he repeats again, um, know that this is, all right, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers and elders of the people, for you are being called account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame, or being asked how he was healed. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you, you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Again, the Holy Spirit empowering someone to be witnesses of what? Of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And so... Then as we move forward, you get to this believer sharing all things in common. End of verse 4. So when you have people that are united in mission and, and coming under this, this, uh, this same Lord and Savior. So they're united in mission, united in purpose, united in focus, united underneath Christ. It's really easy to see how that all of a sudden spreads to this goodwill or generosity that ends up flowing from believer to believer. It's one of the things we look at with Christianity anywhere in the world is if everyone is united really around their own particular experience of God. God, what is your will for my life? How are you going to answer my prayer? How, how is this all going to work out for me? That you end up with just a very weak church. We, we've got the whole thing flipped around as if our, our, our God is our stomach. Um, we worship our own appetites, that it's really all about me. We've, we've somehow missed this whole point that it's God's will. We serve it. We serve one Lord. And when we do that together, we come and become strong. Like many things knit together can become strong, but when you separate them, 
it becomes weak. So there's something really fascinating about this. But before we celebrate the early church, which is what we always do too much of, this same church that had everything in common, and we'll preach this, and everybody will get uh, to feeling guilty because we don't look like that. A couple chapters over, they have to choose um, Stephen. So chapter 6 and chapter 7, they choose these deacons or we need more leaders is what it comes down to. And why did they need more leaders? Because the Greek-speaking widows weren't getting any help. So as all this money was coming in, you had the Jewish-speaking, uh, Aramaic-speaking widows that were kind of comfortable or from the area. And then you had these Greek-speaking widows, the, the, kind of the other. And they weren't getting their fair share of, of the help for the widows. So you begin to realize the early church has its own division, its own kind of preferential treatment, if you will, for the people that are closest to them. And so the, the church begin to show, uh, begins to show that it's just kind of a human construct. Stephen, because there's a beginning uh, persecution under Saul, who we know as Paul, uh, is taken and gives this speech where he doesn't back down, basically preaches, if we just took Stephen's message, we would have the whole story of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preaches this, then he condemns those leaders, and so they, they stone him, the first martyr. And so at the end of chapter 7, we see the first martyr. I want to read to you the beginning of chapter 8. And so Saul, this is Paul, the apostle Paul, approved of their killing him, Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Where were they scattered? Say it loud. And what are Judea and Samaria? Backyard. So the interesting thing here is, were they scattered all the way? Or scattered partially? In terms of what Jesus had said in, in, in our Christian witness, they were scattered from home in the backyard, but not all the way abroad, right? Witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. They were scattered from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, right? So they were scattered from home into backyard. <clears throat> so except the apostles, they were scattered throughout Judea, uh, Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So we see something really interesting happen through the rest of chapter 8. Now that they're scattered, God begins to call specific apostles to uh, preach the gospel to those outside of the Jewish community. So Philip gets this chance to preach. Peter ends up going to Cornelius' house and preaching. But there's always a provocation of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is setting up an encounter so that one of these apostles can preach the message to somebody that God has picked out that's, that's not a, a, a Jewish person, that's a Greek, it's a Gentile. So you begin to see the gospel going now to the Gentiles. And then as we go further, we hit um, chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because there's a really cool church here called Antioch. And so when we get to Antioch, we see something fascinating. Acts chapter 11 Verse 19 says, Now those who had been scattered by that persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only to Jews. So when it was up to them, not up to the Holy Spirit, who would they talk to? 
They would talk to Judea, not Samaria. They would talk to the people in the backyard that they had an affinity with, right? Does that make sense? So these people that are scattered are going, but they're spreading the word only to Jews in the backyard to, their, to the, the Judea part, their affinity group. Now some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, the others, the, the Samaria kind of culture, Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is the first time that we see people really owning the message of Jesus for others outside of their own kind of family circle or affinity group. Not being prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to Gentiles, but going uh, to Gentiles in terms of their mission, in terms of their understanding of the gospel. So this begins to happen at Antioch. We go forward to chapter 13, and what happens at Antioch is that they set aside uh, Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 13, when, Ball and Sarn, uh, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned uh, from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So there's conflict in the early church. They have a whole council meeting about it, uh, about how we're going to do this thing by taking the message of Jesus to non-Jews. They have this whole fight. They resolve it. Uh, Barnabas and Saul come back from that council meeting. And when they come back uh, to Antioch, they have these prophets there. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Not the Holy Spirit moved, but the Holy Spirit said. Do you guys pick up on that? The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So they put their hands on these two guys senior pastor, senior associate pastor, and they send them off to go where? Beyond the backyard into the ends of the earth. So here's something really ironic. Paul was the one who persecuted Jerusalem. Because he persecuted Jerusalem, people took the gospel to Judea, Samaria. So God used in some strange way Paul to kick off this scattering which brings the gospel to Antioch or kind of the, the extent of the backyard. Then God takes this Paul and after he's converted him and taught him and trained him up, all of a sudden plugs him right here and says, I used you to begin the, this cascading dominoes. Now I'm going to use you to do what no man before you has done. And you're going, to go, you're going to be the guy that's going to start to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Isn't that amazing? Paul didn't just become a missionary. He was the impetus at the front end and then becomes the impetus for global missions. And why do you think that is? I'm convinced that what Paul had in spades was a blind zealous willingness to follow God at all costs. Back here when he got it wrong, and here when he got it right, but what was true about Paul was his zeal to follow the Lord at all costs. You know, Paul says some of the most weird stuff in Scripture. In, in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, he says it uh, as 
plainly as possible. He alludes to it in Thessalonians and Timothy. But in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, he says this. He says, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. Is that, how does that hit you? Is it, is, yeah, a little arrogant. Like, really? You're tooting your own horn? You're calling your, your own number? Like, you're, you're what? Like, so I teach my, my daughters all the time um, the Malcolm Gladwell principle that if you really want to be better than everyone else, it's going to take 10,000 hours. I've told you guys this before, right? So in our household, they know when I say 10,000 hours. Like, now I have one daughter that spends all of her hours, instead of actually doing the thing, trying to figure out how she can cut 10,000 hours down to like 2,000 hours. So she's trying to outsmart the system, right? Which I think is a part of 10,000 hours when you put it in its own category. Um, but so I'm always like 10,000 hours. Hey, there's going to be 100 people lining up for a job someday. Five of them are going to get it. You want the job? Got to be in that five. How are you going to be in that five? 10,000 hours. Like, you, you know, I'm always just trying to, that's how, I, that's how I do. I don't have much love or grace for my daughters. I just talk to them about economics and 10,000 hours and all that. What I want to say to you is, no matter what you think of Paul saying, I worked harder than all of those other apostles, no matter what you think of that, it's true. He was stoned more. He was put in prison more. He was beat more. He went hungry more. He's the only apostle I know that was shipwrecked. By the way, he says all these things too. Like he really gets into it. Um, he, he worked harder. Why did God use Paul? Because Paul was willing to work harder than anybody else. Not that Paul was special, but that there's a harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. There was a dude that said, I'll work hard. And so God used him here. He used him here. He used him here. He used Paul up. You want to know what it looks like to be on mission with God? Um, there's mistakes behind you you have to forget. There's enemies beside you you have to ignore. There's challenges in front of you that are going to grind you down. Yet, in that pocket, you keep moving forward, trusting that the Holy Spirit is guiding, and where the Holy Spirit guides, the Holy Spirit will provide, and even being willing, like it was for Paul, that you would die lonely and rejected with all of your friends having left you. We have this strange American dream notion of serving God that if we really find God's will for our life, it's going gonna, it's gonna to perfectly harmonize with our dreams for our life. Let me say it again. That if we find the will of God, that somehow it's going to harmonize perfectly with our dreams for our life. And what it's going to do is just maybe... Like, give us the extra power to finally make our dreams come true because we all know that it's a little hard to make our dreams come true. And so we kind of think, if I just found it, it would synergize and it would work and it would have power. And wouldn't it be amazing? I would be a light bulb of joy. I would shine like a light in a dark place. God, the witness I would have as everything is comfortable <laughs> in my life. It would be amazing. And that's not the case. We don't have to get through our challenges so that then we can do the mission of God. The mission of God is right now if we choose it. 
The Holy Spirit will lead us into it if we're willing to listen. And it will be difficult and it will be challenging, but we will be used by God to serve his mission. And he will then provide for us, getting us out of prison through an earthquake like Paul and Timothy in Philippi. Saving us from a shipwreck. I mean, God will provide when we get beyond where our own power can take us or our own energy can sustain us. The God that led us into that. God, I cast lots five different times. Now I'm backed into a corner. You know, if we were doing it right, God would say, you're right where I want you to be. And I'm going to open a door for you. It's like, you just hang in there. There's a door opening for you. I'm coming for you because I didn't lead you here to leave you there. I led you here and I'll get you out of here because we're, we're doing this thing. This is a story. This is a mission. This is a journey. And we're, we're in it together. The Holy Spirit is not just a power but a friend and a comforter that is going with you as you journey through this process. We're out of time. So let me just read one or two little lines because there's a couple more chapters I wanted to get to. And a slide or two. You know what? Let's get to the, the verse that I had. Let's just use that as conclusion. This is a crazy verse. As Paul is given defense at one point, and he's telling the story, he says, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. God, uh, David served God, and then he died. And it's kind of a crazy epitaph, isn't it? But it's also beautifully simple. David submitted to and with his zeal was willing to serve God. He did it. He did it in his generation, and then he died. Paul became a missionary to the Greeks, started with the Jews, became the missionary to the Greeks. He had a purpose in his generation. He did it. He took to Macedonia. He took and witnessed, brought the gospel, set up churches. He did that in his generation, and then he died. What's fascinating is one of the churches he went to, one of the cities he went to, where he was chased all around the city, he had to go into hiding. There was a riot. Is Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, where the goddess Artemis is. It's still one of the, the most amazing ruins you can go to today in, in modern-day Turkey, Ephesus. And, and you can still see the amphitheater where everybody gathered when they were against Paul. So Paul comes here bringing the gospel. There's a riot, right? What happens a couple generations later? That was the home church of, of John, the Apostle John. That's where he wrote the gospel of John. It's when he was in the city of Ephesus and the church there. And, and many apocryphal stories have it that the mother of Jesus, Mary, actually went to be with John there at that church in Ephesus and died right outside of Ephesus. There's a big fortress kind of Catholic church there. The Pope even visited, not, to, uh, not the current Pope, but a couple co uh, Popes back, even went and visited there. And you have a lot of people that go and venerate that site, believing that Mary um, possibly died in that community. So Paul served God in his generation and then died. What happened in the next generation? What Paul had begun began to flourish. And, it, and in different generations it flourished again. In dif different generations it flourished again. What are we going to do in our generation? By the way, if you're a parent, your mission in life is not your kids. Your kids are your responsibility. You don't say to God, God, you're serving me with this mission I have of my kids and all of the ideas I have for them. 
Rather, we take our kids with open hands and say, God, here are my kids. They're below you and your mission. Please care for them. I love them. And I want to try and be as responsible as I can be. But everything I am, everything I have serves you, God, not the other way around. And I think when we begin to take these things that we think are godly and we build little idols out of them, we compartmentalize the heck out of our faith and it, and it gets very convoluted and it's not very simple. I serve God. No matter my job, no matter my career, no matter where God planted me, no matter the relationships, I live by faith in the resurrection of the Son of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is going to be a light to people as I go through the difficulties I go through, as I endure the persecution, as I try to find joy out of the trials in my life and continue to seek God. Where do you want to take me next? Even with crazy faith steps that aren't going to make sense to anybody else or with a wisdom that we believe or trust is from God that nobody else is really going to understand either and that we do that as a community of believers that people can look at and see and know that we're his disciples by our love because we truly are united under one head. We have one common purpose. We're serving one common will of God and that we're doing that together, encouraging one another, knowing that if it isn't easy for me, then it's probably not going to be easy for you, but we can do this in our generation before we die. And it's a beautiful, wonderful epitaph to be able to go away with and say, I lived a life of faith. I wasn't Billy Graham. I wasn't trying to be, be Billy Graham, but I was responsible with the things that God gave me, and I lived a life of faith, and, and that was all that mattered because I was looking forward to the resurrection of the dead that comes through the Son of God. And that's the story. And so when we look at the book of Acts and we're saying, join us on mission. We're looking at Acts. Join us on mission. It can't be some abstract thing that you go, man, these theologian guys that are pastors, they like to just talk and all these, but it doesn't fit my life. And I'm saying it fits and touches every single aspect and part of your life. Would you or, or if you have surrendered it? to the will of God. Father, we, we commit to you our lives. We certainly commit to you this church in our failings and in our shortcomings and the things we get wrong, even in the things we get right. May we encourage each other as long as it is called today as we walk and strive and wrestle with and seek to obey and commit to this wonderful mission that we can join you on and being witnesses in this world of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God. And so we ask for your power, we ask for your blessing, we ask for your instruction, and we do that now in Christ's name.